Where have we been so far in this series? There is a beautiful, amazing, mysterious, eternal fellowship that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Within that fellowship is mutual love, mutual honor, righteousness, and holiness, and power. And when you, in your heart, believe upon Jesus... When in your heart you believe that He was sent to die for your sins and that He alone can forgive you, and you confess that with your mouth, you are invited into that fellowship. You are invited to take part in that mutual love and honor and righteousness and holiness and power. But not just you as an individual. Together, corporately, with a body of believers, we are joined. There's two pictures in the Bible that show us what that fellowship looks like. One of them shows us our dependence on Jesus. One of them shows us our dependence on each other. There's an illustration of a vine. God the Father is the vine dresser. He takes care of the vine. The vine is Jesus. When we believe upon Christ, confess Him, we, by the power of the Spirit, are joined to that vine. We are branches. And now it is the life of Christ that comes into our life. And He gives us life. Apart from Him, we die. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. But when we are in the vine, His power, His life is in us. Even His works. The branch doesn't produce fruit. The vine produces fruit into and through the branch. That's the picture. We're dependent on Him. So we abide in Him. But we're also dependent on each other. We are a body. Just like a physical body is made of many different parts that have different names, different appearances, different functions, but they work together as a cohesive unit, so is the fellowship of the believers. We are a body. We are different, but we are one. We work together, we're joined together in unity. And now we receive instructions from God on how we are to live together and live out in light of the fact that we are dependent on Jesus, in light of the fact that we are dependent upon one another. And that's where we're going in this series, on that foundation, the instructions that we are given in the Bible. I pray, Father, that You would open our eyes, the eyes of our heart this morning, that we would live and keep Your Word, that You would open our eyes and we could behold these things, wondrous things out of Your Scriptures. That what we are hearing today would be a delight to our soul That we would not be bored with this, but it would be a delight to us. Your testimonies would be our counselors. I pray, God, that You would set our hearts free today, just like we were talking about earlier. Free us from sin, but also free us from apathy. Free us from love for the world more than we love You. Enlarge our hearts with affection for You and Your Son, Jesus. And let us run, run out of this place, run in our lives toward Your commands and from Your commands. In Jesus' name. So from that foundation, we are taking a look every week at one primary instruction. One primary instruction for the church. Last week, we looked at Hebrews chapter 3. This week, Hebrews chapter 10. These passages are really closely related. So closely related, I didn't even bother to change the the, uh, reference in your worship guide. still says Hebrews 3. It's actually Hebrews 10, though, as Mike pointed out. Our main focus today will be Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25. But before we get there, I want to go back for a moment to last week because it's really important that we remember where we were and the instruction from last week because the instructions for this week flow into it. So here's where we were last week. There is a danger that every professing Christian faces, and that danger is unbelief. That you allow unbelief to creep into your heart 
where you begin to doubt God or mistrust God. It especially happens in times of trial in the wilderness when we're afflicted and going through difficulties. And so what the Bible says is be careful. Guard your heart against unbelief. Because if unbelief is allowed to do its work, it will grow over time and it will lead you away from the living God. But we are instructed not just to pay attention to our own hearts, but also to one another. Remember the picture of the body of Christ. You can't just look at one part of the body and say, well, if you're healthy, excuse me, if you're sick, at least 90% of the body is still healthy. It doesn't work that way. If one part is not doing well, if one part is spiritually unwell, it's going to affect the entire body, the entire church. So we are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. It does matter. The hearts of those next to us, the hearts of those in the assembly that we're in. So we have to care for one another. So the instruction that we were given last week is exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. And that word exhort, we talked about last week, it's a very rich word. It means to encourage, to persuade, almost a begging, to comfort, to admonish. Every one of us needs those things in our lives at times to keep us believing and to keep us away from unbelief. Sometimes you need a brother or sister to come alongside of you and encourage you, don't give up, keep going. Sometimes you need a brother or sister to come alongside of you and comfort you. Sometimes you need them to persuade you that what you're thinking and and the path that you're on may not be the best, and sometimes you need someone to sit you down and warn you. And God has given us that responsibility for one another. Not to judge, not to criticize, but to love one another. This is how we love. The world says you love by letting people be whoever they are and do whatever they want. God says true love is to love as Jesus has loved. Exhort one another to belief. Warn one another away from unbelief. That's our responsibility. So we exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. So as a reminder, in your handout, there's this life truth. If you are a note taker, you like to fill in the blanks. Here's the first one. And this is a reminder from Hebrews 3. It's just a different way than we put it last week. You are a means of God's grace in the life of your fellow church members. And they are a means of grace in yours. You are a means of grace to these people sitting around you and the people who belong to this church who aren't here today. And they are a means of grace in yours. And church, that should excite you. You do not join with the church. You do not come to a gathering just to be a spectator. God has designed His Spirit to be in you and you are a means that He wants to use in other people's lives, other Christians' lives, to keep them believing. So He calls someone by name in this church and He says, I know who I can bring alongside of them to exhort them and help them. And it's you. He looks from his throne and says, I can send Sam, I can send Eric, I can send Corey, I can send them to that person's life and they will exhort them and help them. That is his design for the church. Not that we just come together once a week and then go our separate ways. We are in each other's lives because we are a means of grace that God has designed. 
That's our picture from last week. So what is our instruction this week from Hebrews 10? It's going to go right along with that. And it's from verses 24 and 25 in what we what Mike read to us a moment ago. Let me pause and say that if you do not have a copy of God's Word, we want to gift you with one. And so there are copies on the back table. There's some kids' Bibles. There's regular Bibles back there. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, please pick one up. That is our gift to you. And you can take it with you when we're done. Verse 24 and 25. Keep all this in mind from last week as we move to this verse. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now I want you to pay attention in verse 25 where it says encouraging one another. It's the same word from last week. It's the same Greek word. In Hebrews 3, it's translated exhortation. In Hebrews 10, it's translated encouraging. It's the same word. We are to meet together, and one of the purposes of our meeting together is exhortation. So here's our instruction for today in your notes. Our instruction to the church. Last week, it was exhort one another every day. This week, it is this. Make it your normative habit to assemble with your fellow church members for the aim of sincere worship and mutual exhortation. One more time. Make it your normative habit to assemble with your fellow church members for the aim or the goal of sincere worship and mutual exhortation. Now what I want to do is I want to walk through that statement. I want to show you where I'm getting that from Scripture. And I want to do a little bit of definition for each or most of the terms that's in this instruction. So let's start with the word normative. When you hear the word normative, you read that in the instruction, in the blank, I want you to think weekly. Write that in, weekly. What I'm saying is, I believe it should be the normative habit, the weekly habit of your life to assemble with other believers. And here's where I'm getting that. When I say weekly, by the way, I don't mean just necessarily once a week. I think that's a minimum. But what I'm saying is, and how we schedule our week, we think about our lives. What, what are we going to do this week? What is my schedule going to look like this week? I believe the gathering of the believers should be part of that weekly schedule in our lives. Verse 25 says the reason or part of the reason that we're gathering is for exhortation. All right, Remember last week, how often do we need to be exhorted? Every day. So I may be minimizing it by just telling you weekly, where in your mind you just say, okay, at least once a week. But honestly, it probably should be more than just once a week. It may should be more than twice a week. Because you need daily exhortation. But what I'm saying to you is your weekly schedule should include a gathering of the believers. And according to what the writer of Hebrews is saying, the more you see the day drawing near, the more you should do this. The more you see the day drawing near, the more you should gather with believers. What is the day drawing near? Well, certainly it's the day of judgment. 
the more we see that time is drawing to a close, the more we see that what Jesus told us would happen, that the love of many would grow cold, the more we see that, the more we should try to be together. But I would also say, the day that draws near is our own lives. The older we get, the closer that we get to seeing Jesus, obviously none of us know. As young as we are, it could be tomorrow. But the more that our life advances, the more that we know we're getting close to seeing Jesus, the more we should try to be together. So normative is weekly. Make it your normative and then habit. So make it your weekly habit. What is a habit? Two words in these blanks that I want you to think of when you think of the word habit. Intentional priority. Intentional priority. We are being instructed that it should be our weekly, normative, intentional priority to gather with believers. Our habit. Verse 25 again. Tells us that the habit of some in that day, think of this, this is the early church. This is the first century. It was already happening in that day that people were beginning to develop the habit of neglecting meeting together, of abandoning meeting together. It was already happening. And this writer, and I told you this is probably a sermon or at least a sermon letter, he's exhorting the church, look, it's happening. You know it's happening. Already, some of you are you're getting out of the habit. You're forsaking the gathering. You're doing other things. It's not a priority. And he says, don't do that. Don't be like that. Which means what? It means the inference is make the opposite of that in your life, which is make it a habit to gather together. Make it your intentional priority. How do you create a habit? Well, you have to be intentional. You're not going to fall into a habit. You have to plan it. If you don't plan it, it won't happen. And you have to prioritize it. You have to say, this is going to be intentional in my life. When I go to fit my schedule, I am going to make sure I am gathering with believers. But not only that, I'm going to prioritize it. Which means... I'm going to have to look at the other things that I'm doing in my life, and if the other things that I am doing are going to threaten my ability to be able to gather with other believers, I'm not going to do those things. Because this is going to be my priority. I saw a video recently on social media. Some of you may have seen it. It was a professor giving a lecture to a class. He brings this big jar up to the front of all of his students, and he begins to pour golf balls into the jar. And he pours it about halfway and he says, do I have room for more? And they all say yes. And then he pours it to where the golf balls have completely filled the jar. And he says, can I put anything else in here? Is it filled? And they said, yes, it's filled. Then he gets a bag of sand out and he begins to pour the sand. And the sand runs into the jar and it fills all the spaces and all the gaps showing that he could fit some more into the jar. And then he looks at his students and he says, the golf balls represent the things that you give the biggest priority to, the most important things in your life. The sand are the things that should be the lower priorities in your life. If you put the sand in first, 
you don't have as much room for the golf balls. You can't fit as many in the jar. And his point to his students was, you need to figure out what the most important things in your life are. Put those in first. Do those things first. Prioritize those things first. Then the, the other things, the less important things, it's like the sand. That's, you fill in the gaps. But if you put the less important things in first, you won't have room for the most important things. That we should make this our intentional priority. This is not about perfect attendance. Everybody's going to miss gatherings at times. The question before us though, is the gathering of the believers a golf ball or is it sand? Because what happens sometimes in the life of a Christian is they gather with believers if it fits their schedule. They have other things that are more important, bigger priority. And rather than be one of the golf balls, the gathering of the believers is sand that gets poured in if it fits. What I'm saying to you is what God is telling us is that the gathering of the believers should be one of the top priorities of our life. It should be a weekly intentional priority. We should make room for it and we should be careful that the other things we're doing in our life doesn't interfere or threaten our ability to gather with one another. Make it your normative habit to do what? To assemble. In your notes, assemble. What does that mean? It means to be gathered to, excuse me, to be gathered together to Christ. So what are we talking about making room for? A weekly intentional priority to assemble with other believers. In verse 25, it says, not neglecting to meet together. Meet together is a word that means to assemble or to be gathered. That particular Greek word is found in one more place in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 2.1 And what it is talking about in 2 Thessalonians 2.1 is when Jesus Christ comes to the earth and His church is gathered to Him. His church is assembled before Him. So the type of meeting that we're told to do on a weekly basis and to be intentional in prioritizing is the type of meeting that will happen when Christ returns. It's a picture of His church being gathered to Him. So what I am saying to you is this type of meeting being talked about in Hebrews is not simply a Christian hangout. I want you to be friends in this church. I want you to get together and do things. I think you can build relationships, and actually you can build relationships that will benefit your spiritual exhortation of one another. But getting together with other Christians to hang out and have a good time is not the kind of meeting together that's being described in Hebrews 10. The meeting together that's being described here is we are gathered to Christ for worship. His church is brought together before Him. Do you understand that's what happens on a Sunday? Why is the corporate gathering of the church important? 
this is the one time a week that the church called agape is brought together before our Savior. All of us together. I don't think this should be the only time we gather. I think we should gather in smaller groups that gives us more opportunities to really discuss the Word and pray for one another. I think we should do those things. It is my goal, my desire in this church that every person that calls this place home is joined to some kind of smaller group of people where they're encouraging and exhorting and studying the Bible and worshiping together. I think your life, your spiritual life will be weaker if you don't do that. But this gathering, this gathering is crucial. The whole church, the whole body brought together before Christ. Can we exhort one another in this gathering? Absolutely. Are you not encouraged and exhorted to to watch what you did, what you saw this morning? I looked over at those kids and I thought, What age do we hit where we can no longer do that without being worried about what everybody else is thinking? I was looking at those kids thinking they're going to hit an age and if they follow the same path that I have followed, they're going to hit an age and they're going to be embarrassed. When does that happen to us? We're exhorted when we hear each other sing. We're exhorted to hear amens and look upon each other's faces and we're exhorted when we greet one another and shake hands and talk and impart a spiritual gift to one another. We're exhorted when we come in here and we use our gifts and we love each other and take time for one another. Hear the same word preached and go out and live that word out. We are being called to make it our weekly, intentional priority to gather together before Jesus. Look around and pray for one another before Christ. Shout to Christ together. Sing His praises together. With your fellow church members, make it your normative habit to assemble with your fellow church members. For the aim, the goal of sincere worship and mutual exhortation, let's start with sincere worship. So we are saying weekly should be our intentional priority to come together, assemble together before our Savior. For sincere worship. In those blanks, write the word zealous. We should be zealous to be together from the heart. This should be something we do from the heart. What I'm saying to you is, it's not mere attendance. It's not merely that we just attend. But that from our heart, we are gathered together. We are excited to be together to worship. Listen to verse 19 through 22 again. Therefore, brothers, 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that Jesus opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. All right, here's my question. How do we prepare to be with the people of God every week? Do we? Do we read this? Let us draw near with a true heart? Do we do things and prepare things so that we are ready to enter into God's presence with one another? Because what could happen is this becomes just this, like Sam said earlier, the routine. We have the routine, we have the habit. But is it, is it a sincere habit? Is it a heart full of worship? Listen, I, I, I promise you, I'm, I'm not attempting to be legalistic in some of the things that I'm saying and put additional rules on you. Okay, so there's no, there's no right way for me to say, this is how you should prepare for worship. But when we so fill our lives, And we look at our schedule and we so fill our lives and, and, and we say, yeah, I, I got an hour here. I, I got two hours here. So I'll run into church and run out. And that's it. It is very difficult for us to have this sincere heart of worship and being excited to be together. I was pondering it this week. I, I, think, I think over the years that we've had children, I think we have done a decent job of prioritizing the gathering as a family. I think my kids would say that. I think we've even, there's even been things at times in their lives they've said, could we do this or that? And I would say, no, I feel like if we do that, we're probably going to threaten our ability to gather with believers, so we won't do that. But what I don't think I've done a great job of is explaining to my kids why we do that. Why that's important. Why it matters. What does it look like to have a heart that wants to gather with other believers? What can we do to better prepare ourselves to want to be with other believers? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves and answer for ourselves. Because it's going to be different for different people. But I think if you were to really think about what gets me ready to go and, and be with other believers and worship? And what is likely to put me in a, in a mode where I get there, but I barely get there, and my mind's not in it, and my heart's not in it? I think if you really consider that, you'll know the answer to that for yourself. And I think we should do the things that help prepare us for our hearts to be sincere when we come together. Lastly, we come together for mutual exhortation. If you want to consider it, we come together for the first commandment and the second. We come together to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We come together to love one another as Christ has loved us. 
We come together for mutual exhortation. We gather in this corporate service to exhort one another. That's what the command is. We get together in small groups to exhort one another. We get together in calling someone up and saying, can we get together for Bible study on this day? Listen, we want to provide you opportunities as a church to gather. So we have a men's ministry that allows men to come together and exhort one another. We do that for the ladies. We have a couple of family small groups. I'd like to have more. I hope God will raise up more small group leaders in our church that will come forward and say, I would like to lead one. Can I be trained to do that? But you don't have to wait on us to provide those opportunities. If there are families in your area and you all have Tuesday morning free, do a gathering. Exhort one another. Because that's why we, part of the reason we get together is for mutual exhortation. I want to show you something in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but exhorting, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that's the command. Now, I don't actually like how the ESV translates verse 24. It's actually not the best translation. The CSB does a better job, but the CSB did not do a good job of translating an earlier verse, so I had to decide. So I left the ESV here. But the more literal, original reading of verse 24 goes like this. Consider one another to stir to love and good works. The ESV writes it as if it looks like what you should be considering is the how. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And, and indeed, that is ultimately where we're going to arrive. But the original language and what several translations get, I think, a better job than the ESV, is that what you're considering is one another and how to stir one another up to love and good works. The object of your consideration is a person, not an action. Why is that important? Because if I'm going to stir Josh to love and good works, it's not the same as I would stir Jeanette to love and good works. I should consider Josh. How can I best stir Josh to love God more and love people more in good works? How can I stir Jeanette? How, how, let me think about Jeanette. What, what makes her tick? What do I know about her? What, what could I do to stir her to love and good works? There's a, it's a slight difference, but it's a pretty big difference. Because if you just think about, let me, let me think about how to stir everybody to loving and works. Okay, well, you, you can certainly arrive at some things, and we do that through God's Word and, and sharing God's Word with one another, but some of us, we, we are stirred when someone comes alongside of us and puts an arm around us and says, I love you, and I care about you, and I just want you to know that and I'm praying for you this week. Some people are stirred when you, when you give them time and you sit down with them and you say, let's have a conversation about Scripture. 
we, we're, we're stirred by different things. And we're supposed to consider that. Now, here's my question. How can you possibly know that? Only by being together. Only by joining together and fellowshipping together and, and being in each other's lives and learning one another. That's the only way that you're truly going to be able to know what would stir one person or another. It is the reason, listen, in this day and age, I don't know many pastors that are not, that are not tempted to want to draw crowds and be well known. And in this day and age, we can get in a place where the pastor thinks about how do I reach a lot of people. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I am saying it's not the best thing if you skip over your church to try to get to a larger audience. The pastor's responsibility is to the people in front of him. Now, I'm going to reverse it on you for a moment. It's, it's great that in our day we can listen to pastors from hundreds of miles away, that we love their podcast and we love their teaching, but a church member's first responsibility is to the teaching of their elders. And I would say that to you whether you go to church here or not. Because that pastor a hundred miles away doesn't know you. He doesn't know what will stir you. He doesn't know what you need. He's not responsible for your soul as he is his church's. So we should know each other and we should be known by each other. We should be in each other's lives and not just pastor and church, but all of us as members so that we know how to stir one another to love and good works. So, here's kind of a summary. We are a means of grace in each other's lives. That's how God has designed it. Some of us are extroverts, and that is exciting to us, and some of us are introverts, and that is really, really not appealing. But as I posted from Charles Spurgeon on my Facebook this morning as I was leaving the house, when God has commanded something of us, it matters not whether we see the value in it. We are responsible to obey. We are a means of grace in each other's life to exhort one another toward continued belief. If we neglect meeting together, I please, I want you to get this. Because this is the, this is the line between legalism and the affirmation of what God is saying. Be legalistic and say, all these rules, and here's what you need to do, and if you, if, you, if you miss a Sunday, you're a bad Christian, that's not what we're talking about. But the reason this should be a normative, intentional priority in our lives is because it is a means of grace to keep us believing. When we neglect an assembly, when we neglect a gathering, when we neglect making it a priority, we are cutting ourselves off from a means that God has given to strengthen us. And we will be spiritually weaker that week. We'll be spiritually weaker in that time frame. I told you that during this series, I, I was going to try to be as transparent with you as I could and straightforward with you as I could. And so I want to say this as part of that. If you think about the gathering of your church as expendable, the gathering of the believers as expendable, depending on how you feel, 
If you say to yourself, I'm too tired, I'm too anxious, I'm too depressed, I'm too frustrated, I'm too busy, I just don't have it in me this week. That is like a man suffering from dehydration saying, I just don't have it in me to go get a drink of water. You're cutting yourself off from the remedy. We tell ourselves, I'm going to renew my strength by not assembling this week. When in actuality, what we're doing is we're cutting ourselves off from the means of grace that God has planned to strengthen our hearts, to help us be sustained. I'm not saying you're going to walk out of a church and just like every time you're going to be not physically tired. Ask my family. I crash on Sunday afternoons if I have nothing else to do. I go home, I edit the video, I put it on the website, and I wake up about 8 o'clock. We're not talking, but what we're talking about is the spiritual strength to keep going, to be sustained, to be joyful. God has planned this for us. And when we say, I'm just too tired for it. I've got too much going on. I'm too busy. I'm too depressed. I'm too frustrated. I don't have it in me. His response is, which is why you should be among the believers. Because it's not in you. And that is the means of your strength. I want us to do something. We're going to take communion together this morning. Where we would normally call the worship team up and we would pray for one another. We're going to take communion together. We're still going to end in a song. And we're going to have a song this morning that's going to give us an opportunity to, to thank and praise God for all He's done among us as a church. But we're going to have communion at the time we normally respond in praying for one another. So to do this, we're going to look at verse 23 in Hebrews 10, but I want to, I want to kind of walk to verse 23 rather quickly, but I want to walk to that verse. Let me give you a summary of the first 11 verses of Hebrews 10. The first 11 verses tell us this in Hebrews chapter 10. There is an old covenant system of worship that was given through Moses. It was how the people of God worshipped in that day. And it involved continually sacrificing innocent blood, animals, in order to seek forgiveness of sins. That was a big part of that system. But what the first 11 verses of Hebrews chapter 10 tell us is that that was not God's final plan. Because it wasn't His aim to just have people doing sacrifices. He didn't take pleasure in just sacrifices. His aim was the hearts of His people. That they would love Him with their whole heart. And the reality is that that Old Testament system of sacrificing animals to seek forgiveness of sin could do nothing to change someone's heart. And so what the writer of Hebrews says is that God always had a plan. And if you really look at that old system, it's like a shadow. And a shadow is always cast by what? Some kind of reality. And if you follow the shadow, you can see what's casting it. And so the writer of Hebrews says, if you follow the shadow of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and that old system, you will arrive at Jesus. Because all of those things was a shadow of what was to come in Christ. And so Jesus came to be God's sacrifice under that first system of worship so He could give us a whole new system of worship. He became 
the innocent blood sacrificed for our sins. And when we believe in Him, He has opened a brand new way through the curtain. There was a curtain in the temple that separated people from the inner place where God's presence was. That curtain was ripped in two when Christ's flesh was ripped in two. And through the sacrifice of Jesus, we can boldly go to where God is. That's the picture. So let's just read the rest of it together up through verse 23. Look at verse 12. Actually, back to verse 11. Every priest of that old system stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The priest is standing and working. Jesus sacrificed himself one time and he sat down. What does that show? Rest. I'm done. It's finished. Verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I love that verse. That is such an important verse. If you are in Christ, if you have believed upon Him in your heart that His one sacrifice will forgive you of your sins and you have confessed Him as your Lord, then you have been perfected in the presence of God. You have been declared perfect, but you are still being sanctified. You are still becoming holy. You are still becoming what God has already declared you to be. And the Holy Spirit, verse 15, also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That is a quote from Jeremiah, which the Holy Spirit wrote. Remember we saw that last week, how the writer of Hebrews says, the Psalms were written by the Holy Spirit here. The writer of Hebrews says Jeremiah was being carried along. It was the Holy Spirit that wrote that book, just like all of the Old Testament. And this is the covenant. This is the new covenant. This is the new way of worship. God's Word is on the hearts of His people and the minds of His people, and He remembers their deeds no more. It doesn't mean He has amnesia. It means that He chooses to no longer hold your sins against you. Because, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of sins, there's no longer any offering for sin. In other words, there's no need for it. When your sins have been forgiven because you have believed upon Christ, there's no need for there to be a sacrifice over and over again. Don't we sometimes think that way? I've messed up. I'm guilty. Here's what I've done. Here's what I need to do. I need to be a little bit better. I need to read my Bible a little bit more. I need to pray a little bit more. I need to worship a little bit more. I'm not saying those things are bad. Are bad. They're not. We should definitely increase in those things. But we should not increase in those things to try to make something up for our sins. Because our sins are forgiven. We pursue and push into Jesus to be with Him because He loves us. Not so we can make up for what we've done. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place 
where God is by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest, Jesus, over the household of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Grab a hold of Jesus and never let go, because He's the only way. Be faithful to Him. He's faithful to you. And confess your hope. The picture of salvation is believe and speak it. Confess it. And it's not a, just a one-time sacrifice you make. You believe and confess and then you never go back. And you keep believing and keep confessing. And one of the ways that we confess our belief as a church is communion. It's not the only way, but it is one of the ways. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You preach the gospel when you take communion. You preach it to yourself and you preach it to others. But here's your preaching. Your preaching isn't just showing other people what Jesus has done. It is proclaiming, I believe. The bread that you will find at this table when you come up in a moment is ripped apart in these little baggies. That bread represents the body of Christ that was tore apart. His body split, torn like the curtain so that we could enter and have access to God. When you take that bread, the body of Christ broken for you, and you take it in, you are confessing, I believe this is for me. I'm eating this body of Christ. We don't believe the bread and the, the juice or the wine, if you were to use wine, just juice this morning. But we don't believe that that becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus but we believe that it's representative of it and taking it into yourself, it's saying, Jesus is mine. I believe. When you take the cup that will be poured for you and you drink it, it's His blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Not like those animal sacrifices that had to be done over and over and over, but the blood of God was poured out and shed for you. And when you drink that, you are taking it in and you are saying, I believe Jesus is my Lord. So every time we do this, as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death. We confess it. 